Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Voters go to the polls on Sunday in Ukraine in a presidential election in which the frontrunner is a TV comedian best known for his portrayal of a fictional hapless schoolteacher who becomes the president of Ukraine. Daniel McLaughlin will join us shortly for more on this life mirrors art political story. But first this week, we're going to take a look at the fallout from the report of Special Counsel Robert Mueller into Russian interference in the 2016 US presidential election. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, joins me now from there. Suzanne, the headline conclusions from the Mueller report are now very well known. Uh, According to a summary of the report by the US Attorney General William Barr, Mueller drew no firm conclusions on whether or not the president obstructed justice in his efforts to stymie the Russia inquiry, but he found no evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump election campaign and Russia. But this is by no means the end of the debate over the Trump campaign in Russia, is it, and over this report in particular? Well, look, this is the end of the Mueller investigation. Uh, That is what we know for certain. Um, Now the debate is going to switch to whether that full report is going to be published. Obviously, it was the Attorney General's uh, summary, four-page summary of the report he received that has um, been the the means of communication of its uh, conclusions. So that's going to be one aspect of things over the coming weeks and months. And then in addition, there are a range of other investigations uh, that are continuing against uh, Donald Trump. Number one, different committees in Congress uh, are pursuing their own investigations. The House Intelligence Committee, the House Judiciary Committee. We have uh, a sense from the House Ways and Means Committee that is going to uh, look for Donald Trump's tax returns, for example. So that's one aspect. But secondly, and perhaps more worryingly for Donald Trump, there are a range of court cases ongoing um, outside of the remit of the Mueller investigation, if you like, uh, mainly in New York, uh, to do with his his businesses and his activities, I suppose, before he became president. Uh, number one is the ongoing investigation into hush money payments uh, made via Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, to two women who claimed they had an affair with uh, Donald Trump. And there were also inquiries into uh, his the Trump charity and also uh, the inauguration committee, which organised his inauguration back in January 2017. So these are going to continue um, taking place. Um, but look, undoubtedly, this was a big political victory for Donald Trump. You know, after nearly two years, the Mueller investigation uh, concluded that there was, in fact, no collusion between the Trump team and Russia. Uh, as you say, it's much more ambiguous on the issue of obstruction of justice. But, you know, there is very much uh, a sense of vindication coming uh, from the Republican side here in Washington this week. And this creates a dilemma, doesn't it, for the Democrats? Because they kind of now have to decide whether to focus their energies on on pursuing this report, getting mm. getting it fully published and so on, or do they switch you know, tack now and kind of concentrate their energies on the 2020 election campaign? Mm, absolutely. I think the Democratic Party will be split on this, like they are on so many issues. Um, but again, if you like, I think Nancy Pelosi has proved right. She was w- one of the people who cautioned against talking up impeachment. She said just a few weeks ago that she would not be interested in pursuing impeachment against Donald Trump unless it was real compelling evidence. Uh, and she she warned the other members of her party to await the Mueller report. Um, so we expect that she is going to kind of continue um, with that with that line and now that the Mueller report has concluded. Um, but you've got other, particularly some of the newer members of Congress who are keen to um, con- continue their pursuit. They, they rightly... Uh, point to a lot of problems within this judgment. Uh, number one being the neutrality, uh, you know, objectivity of William Barr, the Attorney General. 
before he was appointed as Attorney General, he wrote a 19-page memo in which he set out his opposition to the whole notion of an obstruction of justice inquiry. He essentially opposed what Robert Mueller was doing. So there's questions about how can he make an objective judgment on this. Um, also, the fact that it took himself and Rod Rosenstein just two day, four, less than 48 hours to come to, up with their conclusion. Now, there is a suggestion that they were perhaps told in advance by Robert Mueller that he would not be making a call on the obstruction of justice issue. But still, that's that's an issue. Um, so and sorry, Suzanne, though, just, just to explain that further, just for people maybe who maybe mm. missed that, that kind of nuanced point, if you like, just to explain that. Mueller came to no conclusion on the obstruction of justice issue, yeah. but then William Barr and his deputy, Rod Rosenstein, effectively came to a conclusion for him. It's not, it's not exactly, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, because Robert Mueller, things have changed a lot since the last, you know, since the, the Clinton impeachment. Um, the rules in which Robert Mueller is working are very, very different this time around. And um, they were quite open to interpretation. He was obliged to present a confidential report uh, to the Attorney General, but there was nowhere saying that he needed to make a judgment on obstruction of justice. Now, there's been a lot of debate here about should he have, you know, should he have made some kind of a judgment? What was the point in him doing this investigation if he didn't? Um, but the Attorney General, uh, as you said, kind of took it upon himself to make that judgment without releasing the information, the Mueller report, on which he made that judgment. So, so that is a very valid point by Democrats that they feel that they need to see uh, the underlying report and the underlying evidence maybe that brought Mueller to this report um, so that perhaps they could make a decision on obstruction of justice. I mean, they're a co-branch of government, etc. So, but, the, but, but at the moment, you know, there's a certain level of trust that what Mueller said, you know, there's nothing too um, explosive in his report. But at the same time, Democrats are going to keep arguing that they need to get hold of the underlying report for this reason. Um, and I do think that Nancy Pelosi, even though she is definitely uh, taking a more cautious approach when it comes to impeachment, etc., she will continue to ask for the publication of the report. All Democrats are saying that. And in fact, a lot of Republicans are saying that too. So that's going to be the next big battle, I think, in the next few weeks, whether Barr will be A, forced to appear before Congress and B, forced to um, submit the report. So there was a vote in the Senate or Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, tried to bring a vote on this on Monday, but it was essentially blocked by Republicans. Um, so I, it, it does seem that there's going to be a political battle over this issue of disclosure. And before that battle takes place, if you like, do we know what William Barr's own intentions are? Because we know Trump himself has said yesterday on Monday that he has no problem with the report being published. Does Barr intend to release any more of it? Um, or, or is that mm. four-page summary was that intended to be it from his point of view? We don't know yet, um, but he has suggested in his Senate confirmation hearing, he said he would be prepared to uh, publicise as much as he can legally. Um, but I think the issue here is the issue of executive privilege, which means that the president at uh, the White House essentially would have a certain amount of power to block certain things being published um, due to kind of confidentiality, uh, executive privilege, etc. And we do know that William Barr has a very expansive view of executive privilege, that he believes that a president shouldn't have to answer to a lot of the things that many people believe they should. Um, now, we know the White House hasn't seen the report yet, but presumably, if William Barr was considering releasing the report, he would probably have to show it to the White House lawyers um, in case there isn't you know, sensitive information in that that they could argue that they should not be disclosed publicly. Um, but so far, we know that the White House has not seen uh, the report. He did call some of uh, Donald Trump's lawyers on Sunday, a couple of hours before it was released to Congress, and talked them through the findings. Uh, but they haven't, uh, as far as we know, received a copy of the report yet. 
We talked there about the Democrats and the dilemma they face in terms of how much uh, more of their energies they want to devote to this particular issue. What about the Republicans? You know, they were obviously exultant mm. over the weekend. Are they ready to move on now or do they think mm. there's some unfinished business here? Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, in, in the hours after the publication of the report, I think it was a sense of relief uh, primarily. And we had a lot of talk from people like Lindsey Graham and other senior Republicans saying it's time to move on rebuild America, put this behind us. But I think within 24 hours, that message had changed. And now there's a sense that a lot of Republicans, and particularly Donald Trump, is essentially looking for retribution. Um, just listening to some of his comments in the last few days, you can really sense the, the palpable anger in his voice. Um, he wants someone to blame, and, and I don't think he's going to take this lying down. Yeah. Actually, um, Suzanne, sorry, we can hear a little bit of Donald Trump. He, was, he had uh, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, as a guest in the White House yesterday, and he spoke briefly, actually, about um, his concerns made it clear he's not really prepared to let this go. Lasted a long time. We're glad it's over. It's uh, 100% the way it should have been. I wish it could have gone a lot sooner, a lot quicker. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that have done some very, very evil things, very bad things. I would say treasonous things uh, against our country. And uh, hopefully that people that have done such harm to our country. We've gone through a period of uh, really bad things happening. Uh, those people will certainly be looked at. I've been looking at them for a long time. Suzanne, you'd be forgiven for forgetting listening to that clip that the appointment of Robert Mueller nearly two years ago was, was fairly widely welcomed. It got bipartisan support. He's a Republican former director of the FBI. Now, I know Trump himself was never happy about the appointment um, you know, from day one, but who are these people that he says have done these bad and evil and, and treasonous things against the United States? Well, I think he's referring to there is a kind of, one could call it a conspiracy theory, um, but a lot of people argue there's some truth in it, of an FBI bias essentially against Donald Trump. So I think what he is, that's what he's referring to there. And um, it's also been echoed by Lindy Graham, the senator who I mentioned a little while ago. He's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a very important committee. And he gave a press conference on Monday. And I think it's significant to what he said there. He said he is wanting to turn the focus now on what the, everyone, <laughs> what Republicans are calling the other side. You know, was there a conspiracy against Trump? Why was this Mueller investigation um, started, you know, with with the cost, with the, with the thousands of subpoenas, with the forty staff or whatever was work, working on the inquiry. You know, what why was that decision made and on what basis? What they're focusing on, in particular, is it, it's slightly technical. But during the Trump campaign, during the presidential election campaign back in two thousand and sixteen, the intelligence authorities got permission, a FISA warrant, it's called, to phone tap Carter Page, a an associate of Donald Trump. Um, but it is subsequently turned out that the evidence they used to get this warrant, they went to court and got the warrant, was based on the Christopher Steele dossier. That was a, ended up being a disputed dossier, a lot of which was basically inaccurate. So Republicans and Fox News have been really pushing this story for months now, saying, look, the real scandal is elsewhere. How come the FBI were given this warrant to tap and survey a, a member of a campaign team based on faulty evidence? So... Lindsey Graham has said he's going to kind of reopen this, have a look at this. So that, that could be 
worrying for, for intelligence services. Um, so I think that's where we're going to see the focus uh, now. And that could really lead somewhere, um, you know, they could if, if they start this investigation. So they're saying that actually the real story is the kind of bias that set up this Mueller investigation in the first place and that Donald Trump was unfairly targeted when he was running for president, mainly because people in the FBI just wanted to stop him at all costs becoming president. It's one of the ironies of this story, Suzanne, isn't it, that the people on the hard right of the Republican Party who spent the past two years attempting to thrash the Mueller investigation and Trump himself is at the forefront mm. of those efforts. And those people are now, of course, welcoming this uh, this outcome. And, and the people who supported Mueller um, are somehow, you know, they're pilloried and regarded as the losers. Absolutely. I mean, the one obvious irony, as you point out there, is that after calling the Mueller investigation a witch, chunt and a hoax, now Donald Trump is quite happy with its uh, its outcomes. And he called, he was asked yesterday that he believed that Robert Mueller was an honourable man, and he said yes. Um, so yeah, th- th- that is one of the contradictions, if you like. But I think Democrats have a lot of soul-searching now as well. Um, there was a lot of um, hope invested in Robert Mueller. He was, of course, a very kind of absent figure, um, very under the radar, very few photographs even of him since he was appointed to this role. Um, and I think people, you know, ascribed a lot to him he kind of almost became this kind of blank canvas on which all democratic hopes were pinned. And of course, he's essentially disappointed for a lot of people. Um, so it, it's an interesting reset that's going on this week in Washington. Everyone is trying to regroup, kind of adapt now to this post-Muller world. Um, but as you say there, I think Donald Trump in particular, this is the kind of person he is, is going to go on the offensive. Um, it would be interesting on, on Thursday, he's due to hold a, and it's officially called a Make America Great rally in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This will be his first big outing since the results of the Mueller report. And I think we'll get a sense then, is he planning on using this as a campaign strategy? I think he will do. And I think it will it will play very well with his supporters. I mean, this is undoubtedly good. And if we're ter- talking about the implications for the 2020 election, this is a very, very good development for Donald Trump. He's arguably now at the strongest point he has been at his presidency. And I think uh, his supporters, and more importantly, Republicans who were always uncomfortable with Donald Trump, they have now been given, I think, the carte blanche to say it's okay now to support this president. Look, it was a conspiracy against him. He 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 wasn't conspiring with the Russia. It's okay. So I think this has really, really boosted his uh, support among uh, the Republican, the, the wider family of the Republican Party, if you like. And you mentioned there the soul searching the Democrats would have to undertake because of the amount um, that they really invested into this this particular mm. investigation. What about the media? Like, does the media have similar questions to mm. ask itself? I mean, did the media become too focused on the story and, and, and place too much emphasis on it? Well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, just... I cannot underline enough how divided the media climate is here, so much more more so than in Europe. So you basically have two narratives, a pro and an anti-Trump narrative that that seeps through the cable news media here all the time. So as I mentioned, the story about Carter Page and FISA and the 2016 election, that is that is featuring on Fox News all the time, um, whereas on other um other channels, it's all kind of much more anti-Trump and there's been a lot of coverage on the Russia investigation. Uh, and then over the last few days, some of um, a representative from the Trump re-election campaign actually wrote to some TV stations saying that some Democrats who accused Donald Trump of collusion should actually be taken off the air because they were factually incorrect, etc. So there is a lot of question marks. In saying that, and I think this is the, the overriding point, there were you know, there were 34 indictments from this investigation. Six people in Trump's circle were indicted. Some of them are going to jail. 
Um, so it's not as if this was a complete non-event. And, uh, you know, it, this has been dripped, fed through over the last 22 months. But if you can just imagine if this had all landed yesterday, that 34 people were being indicted, including Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn, that would be a huge story. And it is significant. So there was crim criminal activity uncovered, not to do with collusion, but but in other ways, um, by people who were very, very close to Donald Trump during the campaign. So that's significant and that's newsworthy. And that, that has to be reported. So I think from that point of view, I think the, the media, you know, can, can defend their, their coverage of this. He is the sitting president of the United States. As I say, all these people close to him, um, you know, were indicted. So that's newsworthy. And second of all, look, there is the argument that we don't know if he obstructed justice. You know, there's still that question mark that wasn't answered. Uh, some people would believe that James Co the firing of James Comey needed to be investigated. That's a huge deal when, when a sitting president fires somebody because they because he says of the Russian investigation. Now, interestingly, not getting too legal, what, what William Barr seems to suggest, his legal reasoning is that because there was no collusion with Russia, well, then Donald Trump could not be found to have been trying to obstruct justice to stop this investigation into collusion with Russia because he wasn't colluding with Russia. That's kind of his thinking, if you like, that the two are linked. Um, but no, I think I think it's a valid, you know, there is a valid argument to be made about why this was covered so much. Um, and of course, these other investigations, if they were to uh, uncover more information, well, then, you know, that that is that's valid, too. So I expect to see a lot more coverage on those other investigations as we go forward in, in the next few months. OK, Suzanne, well, whether we have devoted too much attention to this story or not, I have a feeling it's not the last time we'll be discussing it. Thanks for that today. You're listening to The Irish Times. That was Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent. It's to Ukraine now, where voters go to the polls on Sunday in the first round of a keenly contested presidential election. They will choose from a list of candidates, including three main contenders, dubbed the Chocolate King, the Comeback Queen and the Clown Prince. Dan McLaughlin has spent the past week or so in Ukraine reporting on this election for us and joins me now. Uh, Dan, apologies for the uncharacteristic tabloid introduction there, but I, I'll rely on you to reintroduce some seriousness of, of purpose to the discussion. Before we get back to those three main candidates, could you sum up the mood in Ukraine now ahead of this election and, and five years on since the, the Maidan revolution? Well, there is um, generally a, a lot of uh, disappointment in the political elite in Ukraine. Um, there were big hopes that uh, after the revolution in 2014, uh, things would be very different. Um, if we remember even further back, Ukraine had uh, the Orange Revolution back in winter 2004-2005, when people had hoped that they would, uh, that their new leaders would uh, get rid of corruption, stop oligarchic rule, uh, introduce the rule of law, ensure that uh, the court system worked equally and judged everyone equally. Uh, in Ukraine. It didn't happen then, and it hasn't happened since 2014. So there's a feeling going into these elections that uh, there is general disillusionment with a lot of the old faces that are still around and that are still running. Um, uh, but a persistent hope yet again that um, that someone new could come in and someone could uh, uh, sweep clean the political system and, and start to run the country differently. And what are the principal concerns there? Is it uh, the lingering uh, influence of Russia or is it about uh, corruption at uh, the top level of politics and business? Or, or Why are people so disappointed? People are generally uh, agreed on on the attitude, at least towards Russia's uh, annexation of Crimea. Um, it's you know absolutely opposed across the country, and also to the Russian-led uh, separatists who are controlling parts of eastern Ukraine. So, what people are really focusing on, and where the main disappointments lie right now, I think, are um, 
predominantly with corruption, um, corruption, lack of rule of law. I mean, some of the key things that haven't been done under President Poroshenko since 2014 are, for example, um, an introduction of new uh, of new judges throughout the court system. The court system is notoriously corrupt. Uh, there were demands uh, around the time of the Maidan revolution to completely sweep clean the legal system and start again, to introduce a new set of judges who aren't compromised. That hasn't happened. So even though there are some more uh, anti-corruption agencies operating now, when cases get to the courts, they're often thrown out and they often collapse. People who uh, are generally seen as being corrupt and incompetent aren't being brought to account because of the uh, the judges who are also uh, widely seen as corrupt and incompetent are basically protecting them. And also corruption is 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 really still rife in the country. That's one of the big problems for, for President Poroshenko going into this election is that uh, while people hoped he would get rid of this oligarchic system of rule, um, he's essentially been seen as preserving it. And people think that he, well, you know, he is a billionaire. He made his billions in the confectionery industry and that he comes from that system. It's the way he's comfortable operating business and politics and, and blending the two of them. Um, and he hasn't turned out to be the man to uh, to clear that out and make the system work in a much more transparent and much more fair and accountable way. So is it possibly then as a result of that, if we come to these three candidates, including Poroshenko himself, but the front runner is a, a comedian who plays a fictional president of Ukraine in a TV show. Uh, tell us more about him. Yeah, it's uh, an extraordinary development, really. I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky for a long time has been uh, one of the most popular entertainers, uh, comedians in Ukraine. Uh, for a, a long time, he's been um, the main face of a, a comedy sketch show. Uh, which uh, has satirized, uh, you know, politicians in Ukraine for many years, um, not just since the Maidan revolution, but before. Um, no one really expected him to go into politics. No one thought he had any great political ambitions until the last six months or so. Um, and he actually came out on uh, New Year's Eve and made an announcement at the time when Poroshenko would on and was on other television channels making his uh, his New Year's address to the nation. Zelensky came out on the channel that shows his shows, uh, that broadcasts his shows, and announced that he would be running for president. Um, as you mentioned there, it is even stranger because one of his biggest hits in recent years has been uh, this... Um, this series that he has made with his his comedy collaborators called Servant of the People, in which he plays a teacher who, by various uh, strange coincidences and occurrences, uh, ends up uh, being kind of parachuted into the position of, uh, of the post of Ukrainian president. Um, he has... Um, had great success with the first two series of that show and the third series, not coincidentally, I'm sure, is about to uh, be launched this coming week. Uh, in fact, I think it's Wednesday. So just three or four days before the actual election, he's going to be going out and again being seen by millions of Ukrainians on their television screens as a very likable, very honest and very decent but fictional president. And apart from playing a president in a comedy drama, has he any political experience? Absolutely none. Um, he hasn't been an activist, as far as we know. He hasn't been a great campaigner for any causes. He wasn't particularly prominent during the Maidan revolution. Um, 
as being someone who, I mean, he did support the protests, but he wasn't out on the streets. He wasn't out on the Maidan Square or anything like that. Um, so no, he has no political background whatsoever, which is obviously a major, the major doubt and the major question that lots of people have for Zelensky. Um, in his attempts to counter that in the last few weeks, he started to surround himself with a team of experts and people who do support reform in Ukraine have been somewhat heartened to see the people that he's chosen. He's chosen a, a, a former finance, finance minister, Alexander Danilyuk, who was well regarded, a former economic uh, development minister, uh, Ivar Zabramovichus, who was also uh, seen as being very good. Both of them left uh, previous governments over the last five years because they said their reform efforts were simply being stifled and stymied by people higher up the the chain of command. So he's trying to surround himself with experts, but still, um, in his campaign, he's kind of avoided, um, he's, he's clearly avoided having debates with the other candidates. He's avoided most major interviews. Um, so he hasn't really been tested. And when he has been asked uh, serious questions about his policies, you know, he's, he's given uh, reasonable, decent, succinct answers, but he hasn't shown any great depth. He hasn't shown any great, he hasn't given any great detail about how he hopes to deal with these problems. So a lack of experience is, is clearly one of the, the, the main issues and the main, uh, the main worries surrounding Zelensky's candidacy now. And I know some concerns have also been expressed that perhaps the strings of his campaign are being pulled by the owner of the TV station um, that airs his shows, who I think is an opponent of, of Poroshenko. Is there any evidence to support that or is that just people trying to find some explanation really for this guy's rise? Well, it is a major, major concern. Um, and it also ties in with Zelensky's lack of experience. People wonder if he is or will be, would be if he became president, manipulated by uh, the man you mentioned there, Igor Kolomoisky. He's uh, a Ukrainian billionaire, um, a very successful, but very uh, ruthless businessman um, who has fallen out with Poroshenko since the Maidan revolution. They worked together for a while, for a couple of years, but they've fallen out very badly since then. Uh, the state effectively nationalized Kolomoisky's bank, Privat Bank, um, and he's accused of, of taking huge amounts of money out of the bank before it was nationalized. So Kolomoisky doesn't uh, spend any time in Ukraine anymore because he fears he could be arrested if he comes back. He spends his time in Israel and in Switzerland. Um, and he is clearly... Uh, a very, very strong, very influential, um, and implacable opponent of Poroshenko. So it is, again, a major worry that suddenly this guy, uh, Zelensky, who for years has had a, a very close business arrangement with Kolomoisky in having his shows uh, broadcast on Kolomoisky's One Plus One channel, is now leading the elections. Now, both men, Kolomoisky and Zelensky, insist that there is no political connection between them. But you just have to watch the coverage of the election and the news on One Plus One, and you see that it's extremely positive towards uh, Zelensky. It's pretty much neutral towards the other candidates, including Yulia Tymoshenko, who's the other main challenger. Um, but it's absolutely um, uh, vicious towards Poroshenko. I mean, it's almost a constant uh, stream of criticism towards Poroshenko. Um, and so if we also look, uh, for, just as another example, I mentioned already that the, the third series of, 
of Servant of the People is going to start this week on the One Plus One channel. That's Kalamoyski's. That will get a huge number of viewers. And also, if we look at Saturday's uh, TV schedule on One Plus One, that is the day when it's supposed to be a day of silence before the election when there's no campaigning. If you look at One Plus One's schedule, it is basically from morning to night, Zelensky's programs. Um, so the backing from Kalamoyski's TV channel is clear. Um, what we don't know is that if whether is whether Zelensky, if he did take power, would be able to uh, resist pressure that would almost inevitably come from from the oligarch Kolomoisky. And just finally, Dan, on, on that question, do we know is Kolomoisky financing Zelensky's campaign? I'm not sure what campaign finance rules are like in Ukraine or how much transparency there is around that. Uh, there isn't great transparency. Um, and... Uh, I mean, we haven't seen any figures yet. We're due to see some figures this week on advertising and so on, what the different campaigns are spending on advertising. So that should make it a little bit clearer whether um, all the coverage that Zelensky is getting on One Plus One is effectively coming free from Kolomoisky or he's in some way paying for it. Um, both men, as I say, insist that there is no political connection between them. There's no campaign money coming directly from Kolomoisky, Zelensky says. Um but uh, that remains to be seen. There are also questions over the financing arrangements between them, the business arrangements that go back for years. There are reports that um, Zelensky is actually owed a large amount of money by, um, by Kolomoisky and whether this could in some way um, influence the decisions he might make as president in, and whether his business and political interests could become uh, sort of murkily uh, combined and confused um, we don't know. We have to wait and see what will happen with that. But Zelensky is absolutely adamant that he is his own man. He is independent. And he argues with some justification that if you're on TV in Ukraine, you have to have some business connections with an oligarch because all the main channels are owned by different, uh, very, very powerful businessmen. Dan, you mentioned there, uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, probably the best known still in the West of, of, of all of these candidates, uh, a former prime minister, the kind of colourful track record. She's obviously the comeback queen, uh, uh, Poroshenko being the, the chocolate king, as mentioned earlier. Um, remind us about Tymoshenko's background. Yeah, she's got an, an incredible biography. Um, she first emerged in the 90s uh, in the gas industry in Ukraine. She made a huge success in, in what was then an extremely cutthroat, a literally deadly business at the time. Um, there were, uh, you know, shootings, attacks, bomb attacks, all kinds of things going on in the 1990s energy industry in Ukraine, just as there was in neighboring Russia. Um, but Timoshenko showed her her ability, her business savvy, her ability to negotiate and her toughness by coming through that very, very successfully. From then she moved into politics. And as we mentioned briefly, briefly earlier, after the, she led the two, she jointly led the 2004-05 um, Orange Revolution with Viktor Yushchenko. She became prime minister after that. Uh, they fell out. She was dismissed. She became prime minister again. Um, but was ultimately jailed by uh, Viktor Yanukovych when he came to power. Um, and she was in jail towards the end of Yanukovych's reign leading up to the Maidan revolution in 2013-14. Uh, one of the main conditions of um, the European Union and the United States at the time, uh, one of the main demands, and one of the main demands of the protesters at the time was also that she was freed from jail. She came out of jail um, when Yanukovych fled, the country to Russia in February 2014. Um, but even then, it was it was fascinating to see that she came back 
thinking that she would be welcomed back as the sort of returning, uh, the returning hero. But as it turned out, the, the mood on Maidan at the time and the mood in the country was that we're basically fed up with this whole generation of politicians. Um, and even though Timoshenko stood, at, stood for very different politics to Yanukovych, people just wanted a clean break. So when she came back and she went onto the stage on Maidan to talk to the protesters, she didn't get a very good reception at all. There was actually lots of booing because she seemed to think that she would sweep to power immediately on the back of the Maidan protests, and it didn't happen. Uh, in the presidential, presidential elections later that year in 2014, she was soundly beaten in the first round by Poroshenko. People thought then that maybe she was finished, but she is a great survivor and, and uh, 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 tremendous at coming back in adversity. So basically she just sat back. She knew that Ukraine, I think, would face massive problems with Russia taking Crimea, with the war in the East, with economic difficulties. And she basically sat back and waited for Poroshenko's popularity to diminish. Um, and she was successful in that, in, in playing that waiting game. So now we get to the presidential election, she's back again, making another play for power. And when we look at the polls, we see that she is neck and neck with Poroshenko at the moment in second place, with polls giving the two of them something like uh, 15, 16 percent. Zelensky's well ahead of that on something like 25 or 30 percent. Um, but we still don't really know how all that will play out uh, on Election Day on Sunday. And just just briefly, Dan, how would you characterise in terms of policies the difference between the three candidates? So if you were to say take them on almost a, say a left to right spectrum, are there clear policy differences, or is it all about who who might be best placed to tackle the corruption that people are so concerned about? It's more the latter. Um, it's more uh, who could really make the changes that Ukrainians have been waiting for, because on the really big issues, most of them, the, I mean, the three main candidates are relatively close. They oppose the annexation of Crimea. They want to end the war in, in uh, Donbass in eastern Ukraine, but without giving concessions to Russia. They all want to move towards the European Union and NATO. Uh, Poroshenko is the most... Uh, uh, for the, the most um, wants to see the quickest progress on that, we could say. Uh, he says he'd like to see even by 2023 um, uh, Ukraine ready to apply for EU membership. The other two candidates are a little bit more circumspect. They're definitely pro-Western, but they're not putting any time frame on, uh, on, on a push for EU or NATO membership. But the big questions are corruption, uh, whether they can end the oligarchic system uh, and whether they can impose the rule of law. Uh, Timoshenko and Poroshenko have had their chances and they haven't managed to do it in the past. That is why people are looking to Zelensky, even though he is completely untested and uh, and a completely blank page. OK, Dan, so is it likely to go to a runoff then on April 21st? And if so, who do you think those final two candidates will be? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, none of the polls suggest that Zelensky can do it in the first round. Um, and there's also a, a lack of clarity over, really, because a lot, lots of Zelensky's voters or his supporters are young people. They haven't voted before. It's not really clear whether they'll actually go out to the polling stations and vote for the, for the person they support on Sunday. Uh, whereas Poroshenko and, and, and uh, Timoshenko, they have much more of a, um, a big campaign team out in the regions that can get the vote out. So I think it could potentially be closer than people are predicting. At the moment, it looks like it will be Zelensky definitely going through. And probably if you had to choose one of the one of one of the two others, Poroshenko looks like having the better chance to go through to the second round. After that, really, anything could happen. Uh, there could be a security crisis. There could be uh, any number of things which make people in the second round actually decide that it might be safer to go with the 
the devil they know rather than the uh, the devil they know Poroshenko rather than the unknown quantity Zelensky. Dan, great analysis as always. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.